But we want to welcome you. Our children are being dismissed now for Children's Church. And I want to invite you. This has been a long journey, y'all. But I want to invite you to turn to the final chapter of the book of Acts. As we look at the Acts of the Apostles and find your place in Acts chapter 28. And we are going to, over the next couple of weeks, finish up what seems to be my tenure here as your pastor of being in Acts for the last several years. Uh, But we have been methodically working our way through the book of Acts. And we've been exploring the history of the the first century church and what was going on in the life of that church. And why is it so important for us today to see what is happening? And we're going to conclude our story as we get to this place in the narrative that Luke has written to this man by the name of Theophilus. As he's finishing up the story of the gospel of Luke. And this is kind of like the second volume, if you will, to explain not only the gospel that he wrote, but then to explain to this man who many believe could have possibly been an attorney, a lawyer, a prominent figure, a governor, politician, somebody that could have helped Paul with his predicament of being imprisoned in Rome, which we're going to see today where he is finally going to arrive on this long journey uh, to be in this location where Jesus spoke to him and said, surely you must testify also about me in Rome. And that's where we pick up in the beginning of Acts chapter 28. We see that this is happening, and I've titled our message Determined. And as you can see by the, the image on the slide, often we feel like we're going through life, pushing this rock uphill, pushing this weight, this burden, this issue in our life that just seems to often want to roll back on us and sometimes feel like it can crush us under the weight of life and what's going on. And I think in our passage today, we can see that there's some principles of being determined that we can learn from the the message that Luke records for us. And as we see Paul living this out on his journey to make it to Rome. Now, if I could give you another image of what determined looked like, you could see this one. Now, we think it's funny, but Henry Ford would say the following. Remember, when everything seems to be going against you, an airplane takes off against the wind, not with it. It's that resistance often that gives us flight, that causes us to achieve greatness. Now, none of us would want to fly on CheapAirline.com, which is what you see right here. We would prefer to take a different route nowadays. But way back when, when the adversity was coming, the determination of two brothers by the name of Orville and and Wilbur Wright, uh, guess what? Today we have the modern aircraft, the adversity to overcome, the determination to see it take flight. And I would argue the scripture we're going to see today, what this determination is as we see it lived out in the life of the Apostle Paul, his companions, those that were with him, and what he will do in Rome over the next few weeks to proclaim the good news of Jesus. So I want to invite you to turn to Acts 28, picking up in verse 1. We'll read through verse 16 and we'll go back and I'll expound upon the text with you. Let's pick up and read it, verse 1, Acts chapter 28. And after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea... Justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius 
who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and put his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever was we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Tole. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. Let's pray together. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this account that we have a record of. We thank you for your holy scriptures. And, Father, we believe in the inerrancy and the sufficiency of the word of God. Father, we thank you for sharing this with us today. May you open our minds and our hearts to receive it all so we too may understand what this issue of determination truly is that we see being lived out. So, Father, we thank you. We praise you. Have your way with all that is said and shared. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to share with you, what is determination? Now, we live in a world that truly believes, at least in America at least, that you can do whatever you want to do if you're willing to work hard enough to do it. The old adage from our our generations ago, from our great-grandparents and grandparents, was that they were taught that if you had boots, we're here to help pull you up by the bootstraps so that you can become and live the American dream and do whatever you desire. Let no one hold you back. And I would argue, in our cultural society, many still believe that, and then there are some that don't. But I want to share with you a few definitions of the term determination. And in this sermon, I'm going to give you four principles of determination to help us Go the distance of life that we see outlined in these 16 verses of Scripture. What is determination? Webster would define it as a judicial decision, sitting and ending of a controversy, resolving a question by argument or reasoning, the act of deciding definitively or firmly, the result of an act or a decision, a process, a result, an accurate measurement. I can go on with about nine different determinations or definitions of determination. But I think most of us understand the grit that it takes for us to go the distance. So I want to share with you a few things that we see in these passages of Scripture. And number one, and this may be the best point of the whole message, I just, I like number one really good. So here's what it is. I want to share with you number one as we look at the very first verse. The greater the distance, the greater the determination needed. Amen? You think about that. If you've ever ran a marathon, if you've ever gone on a race, or if you've ever rode your bike for a certain distance, or if you've ever had so much land you wanted to till up and it was a great amount, the greater the amount, the greater the distance needed, the greater the determination you'd have to have to get there. Can we all agree that that's a pretty fair statement? The greater the distance, the greater determination needed to get there. I want to show you a picture of the island of Malta and Jerusalem, uh, Crete, and North Africa shores, you can see all that. And then over on the right-hand side of the screen, left, depending on how you're looking at it, you see the island or, or the, the country of Rome, Italy. And that little red line represents the journey that Paul would take to go from Jerusalem, where he was imprisoned, bound in chains. And then he would go from Jerusalem to Crete, which was about 
322 miles from Crete to Malta, about 560 miles from Jerusalem to Rome, total 1,426 miles. Paul would travel estimated, some would say over 2,400 miles to fulfill the journey to go from Jerusalem. And as Jesus spoke to him in chapter 23 of the book of Acts and said, surely you must also proclaim me to Rome. Over 2,400 miles, this tremendous distance with tremendous difficulty, with all kinds of challenges. If you're just joining us for our first sermon on on this series of what's been going on in the past, Paul, along with all of those who were aboard the ship, the centurion, the soldiers, and the other prisoners that were with him, have gone through this tumultuous time of storm and shipwreck. To finally they make it to Malta as God had appeared to Paul in a vision and told him that no hair on the head of anyone on that ship would be harmed as long as they stayed on the ship. They would all be delivered alive. Now God didn't tell them exactly how they'd get delivered, but they got delivered alive if they would stay on the ship. And God had given Paul this understanding so he would have faith in that God was going to carry out the great work he intended through the Apostle Paul. What a tremendous journey that it took. What determination by Paul that it took to get there. But again, the greater the distance, the greater the determination that was needed. I want to share with you three observations that we see that led us up to verse 1, where we see that they finally landed. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Now, what got them there? Three observations I want to share with you that get us to where we're at. Number one. There was nothing that Paul or his shipmates could do other than obey God's instructions. You remember some of them had thought about escaping on the the lifeboat that was there. They had pulled it in and under false pretense they thought they were going to lower it down. Uh, They ended up, Paul, telling them, surely you've got to cut those boats away because if anybody tries to get in them, they'll be destroyed. Under false pretense, they tried to escape and get away. The only thing they could do after some time is they threw the ship's tackle overboard. They lightened the load of the ship to keep it from running aground. They thought that would help them. They even fasted for up to 14 days at one point and had taken no food. But really the only control they had, despite tying the rudders, despite trying everything they could do, the storm was so fierce in life, the only thing that would save them would be obeying God's command to Paul. God's command was what? Stay on the vessel. Don't abandon ship. Stay the course. It may get rough, but I'm right there with you. I remember as he reminds us, the Hebrew writer writes, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The only control Paul had, the only control any of them had on that ship was to obey the instructions that God had given them. The second observation that we see, they had no control over the external circumstances. They had no control over the storm. And I'd argue we have very little control either. Now, we think we can predict the weather and we can determine when rains will come and when storms will flow. And we've got this wonderful Doppler radar system that tells us when the tornadoes are going to come through and when the hurricanes are brewing. We watch it in the hurricane season and we even come up with names for the hurricanes before they even become a hurricane. And we've got them stacked in order because we think we can control certain things. But I've never heard a meteorologist tell us that anyone's yet to control a hurricane. We know it's there. We see the signs. We understand the symptoms. We get the warnings, but we really have no control over those things. You see, Paul had no control over what was going on here other than, again, back to point one, following God's instructions. 
is all he could truly do to remain safe. We have no control in the life of some storms in our life either, do we? Many of us have no control when a cancer strikes and infects us, or when hardship comes, or a child or a loved one dies early when we weren't expecting it, when tragedy strikes our home. Often in those dire times, we have very little control over the storms of life that are enraging all around us. But what we can do is turn to God's Word and obey His commands and seek our comfort in Him. Again, that He will never leave us nor forsake us. In the eye of the storm, He is there with us. As the old Stand in the Footprints poem says, when, we, when things got really difficult, there was only one set of footprints. Why was there only one? Because that's where Jesus told the man, instead of walking alongside you, I had to carry you. So only my prints were there. If we obey God, if we follow his instructions, even when we have no control over the storm, he provides a way. And thirdly, it's God who ultimately makes the determination for not only Paul's safety and that of the 200 plus that were on that boat, but I'd argue for you and I, ultimately, God has a plan so much greater than what you and I could possibly comprehend. But he gives us a glimpse of what that plan is. 66 wonderful books that tell his story from beginning to end of how this whole thing plays out. Let me give you the cliff notes. If you read the last one, we win. Amen? God wins and God is conqueror and God is victorious. But the greater the distance, the greater the determination needed to get there. Now, how do I tie this back to the greatest example of determination that was ever shown? Let me show you a picture. Now, I would argue the greater the distance, the greater the determination needed. Did you know that everyone in our sin is as far away from God as we could possibly be? And the distance needed to close the gap is something that we could never do for ourselves. The distance from sin and fallen to restoration in God is nothing that you and I could ever close the gap on by ourselves. But isn't it wonderful we have a Savior named Jesus that bore the cross for you and I, who knew no sin that became sin so that we might be His righteousness, who walked that Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross, who carried His cross until He had to have help from this man. Isn't it wonderful that it's God that has gone the distance through His Son, Jesus Christ, to close the gap needed for our salvation? That it's nothing that you and I could have done. That Jesus was willing to close the gap, to walk the distance. From Genesis chapter 3, where God, where God condemns the serpent and says, You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Proto-evangelium. What we see is the first gospel message in the Old Testament there in Genesis chapter 3. And then Jesus walking all the way through all of those Old Testament passages like Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, that he would bear our iniquities, he would be bruised for our transgressions, he would be pierced, the iniquity of the world would be laid upon him. That's the distance that Jesus went to Calvary's cross for you and I. The greater the distance needed, the greater the determination needed to overcome it. Folks, Jesus did all there could be, all there would be, to close that gap, to restore fallen humanity to the Savior, Creator of our world. 
what a wonderful understanding of this gap that's been closed by Jesus. Not 2,400 miles, not 322 miles, but from beginning to end as Jesus responded with his last breath on Calvary. It is finished. Nothing else needed but to put our trust and our faith in the Savior. God incarnate, Christ in flesh, who bore our sin, demonstrating his love on the cross of Calvary. That yet while I was a sinner, Christ, he did that for me. And he did that for you. No length that he would not go to. Not to condemn the world, as John 3.17 reminds us, but so that whoever would believe in him would be saved. To bring the entire world to repentance and salvation. That's what the cross demonstrated for you and I. The determination of our creator to bring salvation to the world. But secondly, let me share with you in verses 2 through 6, another demonstrated aspect that we see, the demonstrated difference that often determines outcomes. Look with me in verse 2 through 6. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice had not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, if you were with us through the study of Acts, you'll realize this wasn't the first time that Paul had been mistaken we called a God. Back in chapter 14, there was some healing that had gone on with him and Barnabas. And the whole town had looked at him as Zeus and Hermes, the sons of, of, of this pagan God. And Paul and Barnabas tore their clothes, grieved over this issue. And here, again, Paul is demonstrating something that is changing the minds of these, these barbarians, if you will. It's where we get the word barbarian from, by the way, is this term for foreigner in the Greek, barbaroi. It's a person who comes from a foreign country who does not owe allegiance to our country or to your country. Frequently of someone who does not speak one's native tongue, a non-Greek-speaking foreigner. Hence the word barbarian. And we've seen that played out in all kinds of movies throughout our Indiana Jones. If y'all like the Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom series and the barbarians that are always trying to come out of the village and, and capture them and do all of the things. Well, we get our term barbarian from this word barbaroi, these foreigners that Paul had encountered. Notice in the beginning of the scripture, he starts to define some differences that we see. And I think these same differences we can apply in our life as well as the body of Christ, as believers in Christ, and as the children of God. What were the differences? Number one, notice the scripture tells us that the native, native people showed us an unusual kindness. There was a demonstrated hospitality amongst that people group, that barbari, if you will, that was there, the non-Greek-speaking natives on the island of Malta that Paul and the other 260-plus shipmates that showed up, and these people came out and they were hospitable to foreigners. Now, it's interesting that hospitality has such a, a big mark in culture throughout Jesus' time and what we see in Scripture. 
We go all the way back to Genesis and we see when the angel of the Lord and two of the servants appear to Abraham before they go into Sodom and Gomorrah and begin to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham recognizes the angel of the Lord and the two servants that were with him, and Abraham bows down before them. And then when he rises, he immediately tells Sarah to go and begin baking bread and loaves and cooking a meal so that they can come together and eat. There was an understanding that hospitality often opened the door for greater things to happen in our lives. Has that ever happened to you? You've met a stranger that you've been hospitable to and you showed great kindness beyond what you had to do, then all of a sudden they may be become your best friend ever. They may be able to help you in a way down the road that you didn't expect or didn't need. But there becomes a relationship through that hospitality that makes a difference in that person's life. I remember helping some families one time and providing some groceries and just little things, stuff we often take for granted. But I remember how much of a difference it made in the lives of that father and mother and for their children. And how thankful they were that we had de- demonstrated hostility or hospitality to them instead of hostility. Even though they never went to the church, they were as lost as a broken compass, had no understanding of the gospel, and they were wondering, why do you people care about us? You ever think about that as a church, the amount of people that we have the opportunity to interact with on a weekly basis in our community, in our jobs, in our workplace, in our play place, that we know the gospel, we are saved, we are set apart, we are called out ones, we are the body of Christ, the bride of Jesus, the church, and how God uses us to show hospitality to others so that they can see that there's something different. Folks, we do not live in a world that gives hospitality because they like you. Matter of fact, our service industry knows the more hospitable I am, the greater the sales could be, the greater the tip will be. You ever notice that with your waiter? How about y'all? But if I get a grumpy waitress or waiter, I still tip, but I don't tip nearly as good as the waitress that was hospitable, that was personable with me, that showed me a little bit of commonality, some friendship, that actually cared that my glass was full or empty or made my my experience pleasant. We tip greater, don't we? There's a note for all of you that are in the service industry, right? Increases wages. But we notice the difference in those people that are hospitable versus those that don't. The people here in Malta and Paul and his companions saw the hospitality and something was going on. But secondly, notice that there was a demonstrated holiness. Now, you may not see that directly in the text, but if you know what Paul was doing on the ship before the shipwreck, Paul was telling the men there to stay on the boat that God had spoken to him. Now, in order to say God is telling you something, in my experience, the first thing we often do is we look at the man saying God is telling you something, and we begin to stack up his life against what he says God is telling him. Amen? You ever had somebody that you knew was living like a heathen, but said all of a sudden, God's speaking to me, I need to do this or that, and we all like shake our head, yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think so. Now, God's used donkeys and mules before. I'm not saying he won't do that again. However... Uh, the likelihood is when we get, when we get opinion from somebody, we, we look at their life and we measure, do, are they walking the walk and living the life that they're trying to tell us? You see, those people that were on board that ship were looking at Paul's faith. They were watching his character. They were seeing his words matter. And when he had given bread and told them to eat something after 14 days, he broke bread and he gave thanks to God amidst the storm of life. 
amidst the unknown, amidst the trials and tribulation, when the men on that ship had thought they had lost all hope in being saved. What's Paul do? Man of faith. Let's eat something. Let's break bread. Let's give thanks to God. You see, Paul was modeling a demonstrated holiness before not only the sailors, but even here amongst these, these people of Malta. See, some thought that Paul was guilty of a sin. Here's where a little understanding of Greek mythology comes in and helps us see what's going on in this text. is greater, a greater witness for the gospel than we could possibly imagine. The Greek mythology believed that the sea would not pardon those that were guilty. And the sea itself would offer up its wrath and vengeance against the guilty person. And the sea would cause the shipwreck and the drowning and all of those things. So when these men from the island of Malta had gathered around and while they were being hospitable, when they saw Paul put the wood on the fire and the viper came out and latched onto his hand, they immediately went back to their Greek mythology roots and thinking, surely the sea has not allowed this man to escape his judgment. He must have been a murderer. But isn't it wonderful how God uses that scenario to defy the mythology that was going on on Malta and with those that were watching? And what we see in record of what happens is that viper... Now, here's a little interesting note if you're a Steve Irwin fan, right? The snakes, there's no poisonous snakes on Malta today. Now, we don't know what was on Malta during Paul's time. There could have been some poisonous snakes. The scripture makes it clear that Luke uses the term for viper here as he's describing what bit Paul. But it's interesting. Some scholars will tell you, some biologists will tell you, vipers don't bite and hang on. Vipers bite and release, bite and release, bite and release. They let the venom do the work. So we don't know for sure whether it was truly venomous, but although Luke uses the word here to describe a venomous snake, something that would have been a viper. But the concept communicated was that Paul was protected because what God had called him to do. And that viper had clung onto his hands. He shook it off into the fire, and he, he wasn't harmed from it. Some say it was cold out and rainy and the the fire warmed it up and caused the snake to bite out and it was a dry bite and he didn't get any venom in him. Well, either way, God used that situation to take those non-Greek-speaking barbarians, if you will, from Malta and he turned the perspective of what they were seeing now and it opened the door for Paul to do some amazing things. But Paul was demonstrating his holiness he escaped the sea, he escaped the serpent, and he stood in direct contrast, contrast to the pagan religion of their day. He demonstrated, this demonstrated act of protection by God led to our third point, which is this. There's a demonstrated change that takes place. You see, when we're hospitable, when we're living a life of holiness, we see a change that goes on amongst those people. Now, it's interesting that many will comment that Luke doesn't give a lot of narrative explanation that we find in the earlier chapters of Acts about the gospel presentation, the evangelion, the spreading of the good news that Paul was all about doing. There are many chapters in the book of Acts that highlight the effort, like in Athens, when Paul in Acts chapter 17 goes before the Athenian council and the men of Athens and says, men of an unknown God. I see that you worship this unknown God. Well, let me make him known to you. And he begins to proclaim the gospel. Here, Luke doesn't give us much of an understanding of how much evangelism was going on on the island of Malta. But we do know that he was there for three months. 
before they had found a ship from Alexandria to set sail. We can assume that Paul was sharing the gospel. We have a demonstrated change that's taking place in those people. Notice in the last verse, of, uh, last sentence of verse 6, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, I'm sure Paul corrected that and explained to him the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father except by the Son. But what God did was, you know, what Paul did was through God, he gave them a change of presupposition. Has that ever happened to you? You thought one thing growing up until God changed your mind and your outlook and your understanding on something that you once thought was one way, but you realized Scripture was telling you, no, you had that one wrong. Here's the, the real way. You see, there are many that grow up thinking in our culture today that there are many gods and that there are many roads to heaven. There are many ways to salvation. There are some religions that teach you can earn your way into heaven, that you can pay enough, that you can do enough, that you can give enough that you can work enough to be right with God. Matter of fact, there's one religious cult that teaches if you do enough good, you can achieve certain levels of heaven. You can become a God like Jesus and ascend up the staircase of ranking in God's heavenly order. Folks, that's in our culture today. But what changes those presuppositions is when we open Scripture and we see what God's Word tells us about it. It leads from a change in presupposition to a change in perspective about life and reality. And that change in perspective also brings about a change in what I call receptivity, right? our receptiveness to hearing more about this truth. In that great Athens passage, as Paul was evangelizing those men there, when we turn to the last part of chapter 17 of the book of Acts, we see three specific outcomes that happened when Paul was sharing the gospel. There are those who wanted to know more. There's those who accepted and believed, and then there are those who scoffed and walked away and said, you're out of your mind. The three responses to the gospel message. But when we have a change in presupposition, in perspective, and receptivity, the gospel will do its work through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to change our life. A demonstrated difference often determines the outcome. Are we as a church demonstrating the differences that God has made in our life? Are we hospitable? Are we holy? Are we living out a change that has occurred in our own lives? And here's a statement I'll leave you with. You may be the only Bible someone will ever read. Think about that one for a minute. You may be the only Bible someone will ever read. Our actions, our hospitality, our holiness, and the change in our own life. What a testimony. I love when we share testimonies. Now, not everybody has what some would call the rock star testimony, right? Living the groupy life, the drugs, the alcohol, the sex, all the bad stuff. And then we came to Jesus and it got all taken away and I'm clean, sober now for 20 years. Wonderful. Some of us have the average testimony, which is the same. When I say average, it means it's applied across the board to all of us. We were lost in our sin and trespasses and we found the Savior and we accepted him. We repented of our sin and we came to Christ. And I've been in church since I was seven, right? Not my testimony, y'all. But isn't that the truth? Some of us don't think we have a spectacular wow testimony. We really don't share it much because we were raised in the church. You know, my mother gave birth to me while she was having communion. I mean, how much more holy does it get, right? I'm joking, but that's, that's the perspective that some people have. We've been in church our whole life. You think you don't have a testimony. Here's what I'll tell you. 
if you've came to Christ, you have a testimony. You know when it happens. You don't have to go back to the church registry book. God doesn't care about the date you were saved. What he cares is that it happened and occurred. And how do you know it happened? Because it's personal. It happened to you. It's your story of his story, of his story in your life. You know it happened. Every believer who's been saved by the blood of Christ has a story of when that day occurred, that we repented of our sin, we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. The Scripture says if we confess him with our mouth, and we believe in our heart, then we will be saved. What a beautiful testimony we can have. But thirdly, I want to share with you the third determination going on here, where God is determined to reveal His glory through His people and His creation. Look with me in verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to a chief, the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Now why why does this happen? Some get into the argument in the religious world and theological sectors of whether or not miracles still occur and whether or not this issue of what we call cessationism, where all of those things from the first century church had stopped and God no longer does miracles, God no longer has apostles, God no longer uses prophets. There's some different theological leans, but here's what I know about all of it, wherever you stand, and I think there's room for interpretation on all of those issues. God uses them all to reveal His glory. Every single one of them. Here we have it happening with those that were in Malta. Those here that were a leading man, whether he was a dignitary, whether he was some form of governor, whether he was some kind of prominent politician, is not really known, but we know he was a large landowner. We don't know whether or not he had bought his Roman citizenship and the name Publius and what he was there for, but we know he was wealthy enough. He had quite a bit of land that he was able to entertain Paul and his companions. Now, we also don't know whether that meant all 260-plus that were on the ship and abandoned and shipwrecked, or maybe it was just Paul and his inner group and Luke and those that were there with him. Not sure, but we know that it happened for at least three days. And when Publius lay sick with a fever and dysentery, Paul was able to do something. Now, it's interesting here. This is the only time in the book of Acts that we see these two things linked together. This is the only recording we have where Paul prays for someone and puts his hands on them, the laying on of hands, and heals them. It's the only two times where we see those two things mixed together with the laying on of hands and prayer simultaneously. This is the only place you will see that in the book of Acts, that it occurs here. Now, some suppose that it happened in the other places as well, but here, for some reason, Luke, the author of all of it, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us this understanding that in this specific event, Even when Ananias lays his hands on the Apostle Paul on the street called Straight in the room when Saul of Tarsus had been converted, we don't see a mention of laying on of hands and prayer, just the laying on of hands. Here we have both of those things. Paul lays his hands. So how does God reveal his glory? Let me give you a few things. God uses the changed lives to change lives. God uses changed lives to change lives. Let me share with you where Jesus gives us the basis for this in John chapter 14, verses 12, 13, and 14. 
Jesus would say this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. That's verse 12. God uses you and I to do great and wonderful things to reveal his glory to other people. When we're hospitable, when we're living a holy life, when we've had a change in the way we do things, God uses our influence and our impact in the lives of others to help them experience the very same life-changing episode and event that we've experienced in Christ. God uses changed lives to change lives. If there's been no change, there will be no change until there becomes a change. Think about that. If you're wondering why I can't get it right, why I can't get it figured out, why my situation's always in the pits, why everything's always gone, while I make all this money, but I got holes in my pockets like Haggai reminds us in Haggai chapter 1, because we're not living Christ-focused life. We're not living our life for Christ. may not even be repentant of our sin and accepted Christ, but we're wondering, why is this not working out for me? Folks, coming to faith in Christ Jesus is not a feel-good, fix-it religion. It's not a health and wealth, prosperity, gospel issue. It's a salvation issue of those of us who are far separated from God. But he closed the distance with great determination to bring us and restore us through his son, Jesus Christ. But Jesus says that changed lives will change lives. The greater the witness we have is what God has done in our own life, and people will believe firsthand accounts before they'll believe a recount. Amen? If you think about it in a court of law, we have a thing in a legal terms called inadmissible evidence. And if you're a witness in a court of law and you take the witness stand and you begin to tell someone else's story, the defense is going to immediately stand up and say, I object, Your Honor. That's secondhand information. That's not first-hand account. That's inadmissible in a court of law. Sustained. Get stricken from the record. You see, the judge isn't going to listen to second-hand accounts of what God did through someone else. Just like most people are not going to want to hear you telling a story about what God did for your grandma or what God did for your friend. They want to hear, well, what did God do for you? How did God save you? Tell me your story. It's interesting when I have interviews with people uh, when they want to join the church or when we're having a discussion about faith and, and they're coming to a conference or an event or something where I get to talk to them about their story. And we talk all around the issue of soteriology. We talk all around the issue of my salvation and when I came to Christ. They tell me how much we love God. We tell me how much we give to the church. We tell me how much we serve the body. And then I have to ask them, well, tell me, tell me about that time when you came to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Tell me about that time. That's the starting point for the journey of life that we're on. And most can tell me, some cannot. And some have that great realization that, you know, I don't know if I've ever come to Christ. I've been a good church-going member. I've given my tithe. I've given an offering. I've tipped God a little bit. I've showed up every second or third month, once every now and then. Keep the deacons at bay, right? Live my life pretty good, never have my bills cut off. I'm doing all right. Tell me about the time you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Because, folks, that's the decision that matters. 
You can be a really, really good churchgoer and be as far away from Christ as you could ever be and be just as lost and dead in your sin and trespasses by going to church, by attending an event, by being amongst the ecclesia, the body of Christ. You can come and you can sing along with the song, but make no doubt about it, the lost man cannot worship an unknown God. If you don't have a relationship with God, if you've never been forgiven of your sins, if your sins have never been cleansed and washed white as wool, as Isaiah 118 will remind us, or white as snow, you cannot be in the presence of a holy and righteous God. Sometimes this hits home, especially on the season of storms in our life when I'm praying with a family or there's loved ones gathered around a hospital bed. And little Billy's standing over there in his mid-twenties, knowing he's living life as fast as he can run to a crash course collision with reality. Living like a heathen, no repentance whatsoever, making it known to the whole world. And then he says, well, preacher, grandma's going to be fine. I've been praying for her. And I understand the sentiment of what little Billy's saying, Billy the Kid. However, did you know that Scripture is very clear that the prayers, of an abom- the prayers of an unrighteous man are an abomination before the Lord? That God doesn't hear us when we pray to Him if we're not one of His children. You see, there's no pathway to a holy and righteous God outside of the salvation offered through Christ Jesus. We're not all children of God. While we were all created in His image, He created us male and female in His likeness, Genesis 1.26. We're not children of God until we've been adopted into the family of God. And there's only one way that adoption happens. There's a judicial legal process that God Almighty set in stone for that to occur. If I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and I believe in my heart, then I will be saved. For one confesses with the mouth unto righteousness, one believes in the heart unto salvation. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, isn't it wonderful that Jesus is clear that he says, If you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father in heaven. But if you do not confess me before men, I will not. I will not stand and give a defense at your trial when God holds you accountable for rejecting his son. I shared not too long ago when I counsel with someone or when we're talking about these issues of sin, no, I agree 100% with all of it, that the sin of this world and the brokenness that we live in is not your fault. It's not my fault that we act out our nature, that we follow the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, these things that ensnare us in this world. It's not my fault that happens, but it is my fault if I stay that way. Think about that. It's not my fault that we live out the natural surroundings of our world, but it is my fault when I've heard the good news of Christ and I reject the offer of salvation and I've never confessed my sins and accepted Christ as my Savior, then it will be a holy and righteous God who has every right at the great white throne judgment when I stand before him, for those that are unsaved, to say to me, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you.
That's the holy and loving and righteous God who sent his son to die for you and I. So we wouldn't have to stand before him and give an account. You see, I don't have to give an account for that because that issue is already resolved in my life. And if you're a believer in Christ, that issue, that great white throne judgment, you can set that outside your mind. That's not for you. God's already sealed the deal. As far as the east is from the west, my sins have been forgiven, not to be pulled out anymore. God uses changed lives to change lives. God uses changed lives to reveal His glory. John 14, 13 says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. See, we're not doing it because the preacher's getting all the glory. The Sunday school teacher's getting all the glory. The deacon's getting all the glory. The the so-and-so, the worship leader's getting all the glory and all the stage time. Everybody loves the way they sing. You see, we do what we do because we know we hope that it's revealing God's glory through what we're doing. Jesus said it would. And lastly, God changes lives to bless others. To bless others. In verse 10, they also honored Paul and his companions greatly when they were about to set sail. They, were put, on, they put on board whatever they needed. There was something different that they had recognized. And through that, God used that provision to help them. James 5.14 tells us that if there's anyone among you that's sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. You see, God uses the changed lives so that we can bless other people and pray for others. Pray for those that don't even know to come to Christ. That wayward son, that wayward granddaughter, that wayward wife, that wayward husband, that wayward child. You know what you can do? You can say, church, would you pray for my son and daughter? Pray for them now that God would get a hold of their heart. Pray that there'd be an intersection of faith and reality where they would recognize the one true God, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God Almighty. That they would have an encounter with Jesus that was so real, they couldn't run away from it but would give their lives in trade for eternity. Folks, that's the reality of what God is doing. But God is determined to reveal His glory, and He uses you and I to do it. But fourthly, as we get ready to close, God determined, He uses determined disciples to encourage one another. Determined disciples to encourage one another. Look in verses 11 through 16. After three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria. With the twin gods as a figurehead. Put your finger there for a minute. The, the ship of Alexander was believed to be a grain ship, a large cargo vessel that had to travel in this inclement weather that would have traveled somewhere during that winter time frame. Paul had been shipwrecked somewhere around October, November after the feast. They left Jerusalem. They've been on Malta three months. That puts them somewhere in January, February. The weather is treacherous during that time frame for ships. But they found this ship there in Malta from Alexandria would have been a grain ship, more than likely, very large vessel transporting its goods to Rome so that the people there could eat, bringing its goods from Egypt to Rome uh, to give to the emperor there. Picking back up at verse 12. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and the second day we came to Tole. We were, we, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and we came to Rome. And their brothers there, excuse me, and, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. 
So how do we see the encouragement? Number one, let me share with you. We as a body of Christ, we as Christian believers, we have to celebrate our victories in Christ. What you celebrate is what you replicate, right? Well, where's the celebration going on here for a minute? Let me, let me have a little poetic license, if you don't mind. Let me explain a little something that's happening in verse 11. This ship of Alexander, as I've explained to you, had these twin gods as the figurehead. Now, why is this important? Just a little tiny detail that Luke gives us about this ship. Some other first century Christian writers, Origen, and some others uh, who wrote about this give, give an understanding of who these were. But we believe that these twin gods were Castor and Pollux on the ship's figurehead, and they were the heavenly twin sons of Zeus and Leda, according to Greek mythology. Supposedly, they were to bring good fortune to mariners. And if their constellation, Gemini, was seen during a storm, it was an omen of good luck. Some believe that Luke included this detail to contrast the superstition of the people of Malta, Rome, and Greece, and Egypt with that of Christianity. Here's what was going on, the celebration. Luke, Paul, and his companions were saying, it's not the figurehead on your boat that brought us safely, it's the God in creation, the God of heaven, that brought us safely here. Now, how many of us would just gloss right over that and miss the victory that we could proclaim, it's not your superstition that brought you. It's not luck. It's not chance. It's not happenstance. No, God has a plan for what he's doing. And we've got to celebrate that every time we see God working in our lives. That it's not something that happens by chance or some Greek mythology or some teaching that we adhere to. But it's God who brings the victory. It is God who provides the safety. Here they celebrated the victories that they were having in Christ. And I would argue we also must do that. But notice in verse 14, how do we encourage one another? There was a fellowship amongst the brotherhood. Now these two specific areas that we see here in the text that were in, in Italy, that were near Rome, they're referred to as the form of Appius and three taverns. Both of them were somewhere between 35 and 45 miles from Rome city center and from where Paul was staying at. These men had walked the distance. These are the same men that three years earlier, Paul had written a little book titled Romans. And this book, this letter, this epistle to the Romans is presumed to have made it there to Rome. And that now when he three years later, after all of this trial, all of this turmoil, all of this difficulty, Paul finally gets to the island, and what happens? Those very same brothers in Christ, the same believers that had received that letter presumably three years previously, were now gathering as different elements of the church. Now we know there were Christians there because Paul's writing a letter to them years previously. And now what do those brothers do? They leave where they're at hearing about this great ship that had arrived with the Apostle Paul. We can't wait to see it. And much like Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on the donkey and they would put their palm branches and sing Hosanna in this highest. Here we have this great entourage now of Christians coming to be with Paul and walk with Paul the hundred plus miles to get to Rome now from where they had stopped off the ship. And now he's got brothers to his left and his right that are encouraging him along the way. And almost like that same triumphant entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, we see Paul coming into Rome with brothers surrounding him, lifting him up, being encouraged because they had been standing strong in the faith. 
that the Christ that Paul was proclaiming around the world had already gripped their heart. What a beautiful image. Folks, it's the same with you and I. When we're down, when we're struggling, when we're in a season of storm in our life and we finally get our feet on the ground to have other brothers and sisters come alongside of us and lift us up and know that we're being prayed for and encouraged, man, it just does the soul good, doesn't it? But thirdly, verse 15 reminds us that we are to invest in one another. As I said a moment ago, these brothers had traveled a great distance by foot. They didn't Uber their way to where Paul was. Uh, They didn't call a lift. They didn't get in a taxi. They didn't get on their Harley. They didn't get in their nice car with air conditioning. They walked on foot to go see Paul. Sometimes it takes an investment that we've got to make. I shared with you this morning our testimony of our brothers in Sturgis that are in South Dakota right now made the three- to four-day trip to get there. Why? Not because of the bike fest. Because they wanted to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the thousands, hundreds of thousands, that would show up in the foothills of South Dakota to hear what was going on. Many of them would show up thinking they had one thing going on. As we found out yesterday, 22 yesterday, heard the gospel for the first time and gave their life to Christ. What a beautiful thing that it takes. Imagine if those men and women weren't willing to invest in the four-day trip to get there to take the gospel. Imagine if we said, we don't care about what's going on around the world. We don't really want to spend the $20 it takes to fill a shoebox. We don't care about all that. We just want to go through church. Imagine if we didn't invest in one another to proclaim the gospel. Folks, I wouldn't be here today if a godly man didn't invest in me. And I'd argue none of us would be here today if the God-man, Jesus, wasn't willing to invest at all for you and I. Determined disciples encourage one another. Let me close with my illustration that we started with of pushing this rock uphill. And sometimes we're going to get to the hot top and we're going to lose a little ground and it's going to roll back on us. But let me show you the greatest stone ever pushed away. It's a stone under the tomb that Jesus' dead body had been laid in. And the reason it's the greatest stone ever rolled away is because it's not our hope in the death on the crucifixion of Jesus that makes all the difference. That he bore our sin, that he was bruised for our iniquities, that he was pierced for our transgressions. While all that's true, the greatest stone ever rolled away was that of the tomb. And on the third day, this Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. And it's the hope in the resurrection that we put our trust and faith in who Christ was, who Christ is. And one day we will get to see him face to face. I believe we can be determined to make that appointment. Amen. Every head bowed and every eye closed, let me share with you just a few final thoughts as you're sitting there in prayer. If you're a believer in Christ, I hope that God's Word has given you a little more determination to see some things clearly, to see all that Christ has gone through first and foremost, to bridge the gap. The greater the distance, the greater the need. Jesus conquered that on Calvary's cross, evident by the stone rolled away from the tomb. He did that for you, and he did that for me. How can we be determined to show that to others? 
How can you use your life as a living testimony? How can God use this church to take the gospel to the nations to proclaim the good news of Jesus? Ask God to stir your heart with how, when, where. I know this. You ask him, he will provide. He will provide to reveal his glory to the world. And if you're here today, maybe you're watching online all over the United States, or if you're sitting in a pew right here and your geographical distance isn't that far, do you know that you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you've never had that encounter, if you've never had that moment where you know, you've said, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I believe Jesus was the Son of God, that he died on a Roman cross, that he was buried, and on the third day, that stone was rolled away. And he was raised from the dead. Lord, help me to put my trust and faith in you. I commit my life to you now. Forgive me of my sins. Help me to walk with you all the days of my life. Friend, that's the prayer of salvation. Whatever formula or however you phrase it in your words, we repent of our sins. We accept Christ as Lord and Savior. And we follow through in public baptism of the death, burial, and resurrection of not only Jesus, but our own life also is new in Christ. So Father, we thank you today for those that have heard this message. We thank you for your word. We pray that it will have its movement in our hearts. That we will not merely come to hear and walk out waiting for lunch. But Lord, we will be stirred as your people to an action that you have foreordained, called us to in this season of life. Father, if there's one here that does not know you, I pray the Holy Spirit will stir their heart in such a way that they cannot come to bear with it any longer until they confess you as Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you for all that you've done in this service already. We thank you for the privilege of worshiping you today. Have your way with all that's been said and shared, and we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.